You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. reason I always want to do some sports commentary uh, over the top of this music. And we take you to White Hart Lane. No Glenn Hoddle is suffering from an ankle injury. They're taking on Crystal Palace. The score at halftime, 2-1. Something along those lines of that vintage anyway. Seven after nine o'clock. We do talk football, the World Cup of football. It's a weird, weird, weird thing. Uh, it's not the best teams that turn up. And it's just been riddled with scandal and peculiar stories of great drama as well. I am Thoroughly enjoying this particular World Cup. Some of the best matches I think I've seen. What drugs are Mexico on? Who cares? Give them to all of the teams. Um, so if that's the kind of performances we're going to see, just splitting Germany apart with sheer pace. It's bizarre and wonderful. The World Cup baby author Ewan McKay will be with us uh, in the later part of this hour. But right now, he's a great commentator on things World Cup. Maybe this country's best, I would say, from my point of view anyway. Anyway, time for Skeptical Thoughts. Bullshit. Hallelujah. And Mark Honeychurch from New Zealand Skeptics. Hello, Mark. Hey, how's it going? Good. That music sound vaguely sort of sporting to you? Uh, absolutely. Really took me back to my youth in England, um, especially with your commentary over the top. Uh, I, I think I got the vintage right. Glenn Hoddle, probably, eh? Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. It's been a long time. But yeah, I, I it has. Got it. Yes. <laughs> Aussie Ardenas up front this week. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the blasphemy law. Um, I don't know why we have one, uh, and <laughs> and who on earth does it apply to, and what is it exactly? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, certainly, a lot of New Zealanders, when they first hear that we have a blasphemy law, they're they're somewhat surprised about it, and um, they go, uh, "Oh Christ." <laughs> yes, thankfully it's uh, it's blasphemous libel only, so you've got to write it down to be in trouble. Um, and it's not about insulting religious people, it's basically about insulting a god. So having a go at someone for their religious belief is not um, blasphemous, mm -hmm. but having a go at a god maybe for not existing or being capricious, that kind of thing is. And I, I, it's interesting, I get asked sometimes um, about what the skeptics think of religion, um, whether it's okay to be an atheist, uh, to not be an atheist, to be a, a skeptic and to be a believer at the same time, and to me, I, I think you can be both. But I, I it rarely. It takes some work, though, wouldn't it? I, I think so. I, I think you have to consciously decide not to shine your skeptical eye on that one part of your life that yeah. you um, that you decide not to critique it. And I, I think. Skeptics generally should be unafraid of looking into anything and everything, and that includes their religious beliefs. So although you can be a skeptic and a believer, I rarely meet uh, Christians or other religious people who are skeptics, and I'd be surprised if they stayed that way for a long time. Once they'd learnt skeptical tools and, and figured out how to properly question their beliefs. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, so this is basically um, blasphemy, which is uh, a law we have in this country. And it, it's not a law that I think really belongs in this country. But it's interesting in recent years that there have been efforts to get rid of blasphemy laws. And it really made the news a few years ago with Stephen Fry. He did a really good interview in Ireland yeah. um, where he was asked about his belief in a God. And I think we've got the audio for that. Yeah, it's worth playing. He's great. Here we go. In spite of your protestations, suppose it's all true mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? I will basically, what's known as the Odyssey, I think, I, I'll say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. And you think you're going to get in no, on that? No, but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. Yeah. Nice. I, I think he makes a good point, but whether you believe it or not, I, I think um, Stephen Fry should have the right to say that. And it turns out that in Ireland, somebody decided to walk into a police station and complain, and there was an investigation into it. In the end, it was all fine, but that's the kind of thing a blasphemy law can do, is to try and shut down people from giving their honest opinions about religion. Um, and so... Turning to New Zealand, thankfully, um, with our new government, they're finally looking into repeal of this law, um, which is going to be good. It's been around for a long time. It's only ever been used once, I think, back in 1923, and that was unsuccessful. So it's a long time ago. It's not a law that really is ever going to be used again. I think you have to have permission of the Governor-General in order to be able to take someone to court for blasphemous libel. Um, but governments have said before that, you know, it's too much effort to get rid of it. So they finally got round to, um, to getting a bill in place, which is looking at repealing this part of the Crimes Act, which is great. They've got a select committee, and I popped into Parliament last week, um, and I talked for a few minutes in front of the select committee, and it was really nice to go in there and have a chat with them. And the point I tried to make was that I believe that having a blasphemy law means that we don't have a leg to stand on, that it's very hard for us to critique other countries that have religious discriminatory laws when we have one on our own books. I think it makes us look like we're being a little bit duplicitous, and um, I imagine countries find it a lot easier to ignore us, given that we've got this blasphemy law that I think has up to a year in prison for blasphemous libel. So I, I tried to explain that, you know, with the people that I've met in different countries that are living under pretty bad laws in other countries, oh. that they're, they're not allowed to meet publicly and express their religious belief, they're not allowed to run church services. Oh, uh, hang on, they're getting macheted to death in Pakistan. Absolutely. So Pakistan is a particularly bad one, and I'm a member of the Humanist Society, and we get emails quite often from people that are just begging for us to help them get refugee status, because they've seen that there is a list that's uh, been floating around Pakistan for a few years of secular bloggers who are blogging about their their lack of belief. And some of these people that are emailing us, they've seen their names are on this list. They are targeted to be killed. And people and on that list, uh, they are getting through that list. They are getting yeah, through right. that list, and in Bangladesh as well. It's not an idle threat. 
I, I think as of a few, uh, as of last year, maybe five people had been killed between Bangladesh and Pakistan. It's, um, yeah, it, it's pretty horrible. And so to not be able to stand up and say this is wrong because we've got our own silly religious-based laws, I think that's not good for us. So um, hopefully this is going to change. Um, the feeling I got while in Parliament talking to the MPs was that they, they seemed to assume it was going to change and they this whole select committee process that you're know, waiting for someone to give them a good reason why they shouldn't repeal the law. Mm. Um, I'd be surprised if anybody came out with a good enough reason to keep it, to be quite honest. So I'm cautiously hopeful that in the next few months we're going to see some change there. Do you think Bob McCoskery might turn up? He's, you know, family first, which is another... Um, a, a euphemistic title for his organisation, which actually means another voice for Jesus. Yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't see him there at the um, the hearing I was at. There was one Catholic guy, really nice, friendly to talk to. Um, he seemed to be mostly concerned about people who um, who argue on the internet, and he said that, you know, atheists can be fairly rude. I think he conceded that mainly they're Americans, though, that he has a problem with. I wasn't sure what it had to do with blasphemous libel in New Zealand, but at least he had his five minutes to say his piece. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, oh... A nice little hoaxy trick uh, this person did in Canada. I'll just play the audio. I think it's explanatory, isn't it? Here we go. Well, are you tired of product claims that overpromise and underdeliver? There's a man in Vancouver who is right there with you, and he did something hilarious to prove a point. Douglas Bevins sold this. Ew, hot dog water at a recent street fair. He bottled the beverage himself and sold it for $38 a pop. He told potential buyers that it would increase their brain function and help them lose weight. So guess how much he sold? 60 liters worth. Mm -hmm. Bevins thinks of the stunt as an art performance and hopes that it will create awareness for people to think practically, critically about what they buy. Yeah. It's too easy, isn't it, to just get a scam if you get your wording right? Yeah, and, and I, I think this guy, he just had enough. He'd, um, he'd seen a lot of the pseudo-medical devices and, um, and pseudo-scientific pills and potions out there. And he, he thought, actually, I bet you could sell pretty much anything as a medicine. And as long as you've got the marketing down pat and you know how to advertise and you can make things look professional, I bet you can sell anything. And he, he thought that maybe hot dog water, you know, the briny water <laughs> yeah. that hot dog comes in or um, that you boil hot dog water, uh, hot dogs in, that, that that would be something that it's so ridiculous. Who could possibly believe that it's going to be able to cure anything? But he did it. So he, um, he boiled up his hot dogs and the water he used was... Um, some kind of unfiltered hippie water. He put it into little vials that look like test tubes with the hot dog in. So it's a it's a portion of this water with the hot dog still floating in it, um, but with a really nice font chosen for the name down the front. And he went to a fair in Vancouver. He went to this car-free day fair. Um, the idea being that you don't use your car for the day. It's good for the environment. To me, that sounds like a, a good target market. You're going for people who are alternative, a little bit hippie, and as well as them being well-meaning with the environment, they also tend to fall into that trap of going for alternative medicine. So I think he picked his place well. He set up a stall. 
He put up a big banner. It just said hot dog water across the top, but it had little tildes above the two O's. So it kind of looked like it was European and a little bit fancy. Um, he wore a onesie that looked like a hot dog. He put a microscope on the table oh. and some vials of different things to make it all look very professional and sciencey. And, um, yeah, started selling these things to the public at $38 a shot. It's a, a lot of money for a bit of hot dog water. I like uh, some of his marketing here. Uh, because because hot dog water and perspiration resemble each other, so when you drink hot dog water, it bypasses the lymphatic system, whereas other waters <laughs> have to go through your filtering system. So really, hot dog water has three times as much uptake as coconut water. <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant, isn't it? And it's the usual claim. So increased brain function, you know, it's hard to test that kind of thing. Uh, he claimed weight loss and a youthful appearance. Um, so a lot of his claims were those kind of uh, fluffy claims that people tend not to get in trouble for. Um, and, yeah, I mean, selling 60 litres, I'd say possibly there was a couple of hundred mils in one of these vials. Mm. So he will have done quite well. He will have sold a few hundred of these to punters at $38 a piece. Um, and hopefully they were all aware of what was going on. I think somewhere written down in the material it did say that this was just a piece of performance art. But hopefully Good. the news, the fact that it got out further, that a lot of people will have seen it in the news, hopefully that's going to make a lot of people realise that a lot of what they get told by marketing people, a lot of the products out there and the claims made about them, they're just nonsense. You know, you, you can package something up to look professional. You can say all these claims and not even get in trouble for making claims about these things. Um, and you can make people believe it and they'll, they'll pay a lot of money. And to an extent, the more money you ask for, the more likely it is that someone will believe it's real and... Yeah. and to shell out some cash for it. So this this guy did a really good job. It looks like the news is making the round, so it looks like people are going to be hopefully seeing other people get burned by buying something this silly and maybe being more critical in future when they go to buy their alternative health products. They think, what is actually in this? Let, let's have a look and see whether the claims stack up. Right. Uh, Mark, don't go anywhere. We've just got to take a commercial break, and when we return... Oh, the latest scare is the LED light. This is news to me. Warning, warning, bullshit alert. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Oh, we could have a moral panic on our uh, hands, or at least some sort of hysteria, and this is brand new to me. <laughs> the LED light... They're everywhere. They're everywhere, Mark, and they're coming to get us, are they? Uh, they are, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the price is coming down, and, you know, you can pick them up in supermarkets now for $5. Um, I've seen people new... dealing them under bridges at night. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a new t it's a new technology, so um, unsurprisingly, like with other new technologies that us sceptics keep an eye on, there are people out there warning us that these are dangerous. Um, looking back into history, anti-vaccine advocates have been around for a 100 years or more uh, telling people that vaccines are dangerous, that we shouldn't go near them. Artificial sweeteners, it seems like pretty much every sweetener that comes out, it's very quick for people to jump in there and say that they're rotting your brain or causing cancer. GM Foods obviously are having a real nightmare of a time getting onto the market. And even the LHC had people complaining that they might cause a 
black hole at the Hadron Collider and it was going to suck us all in. Mm. And it's ridiculous. These things really have little or no risk. They confer major benefits to society. Um, but lighting's another one of those things where whatever comes up, there's going to be people that are saying they're bad. And, you know, given a, a quick potted history of this, I know I've got a friend that sent his kids to Steiner School and they came back with a leaflet one day saying that the school was not allowing the kids to use computers, that there was a worry that the light coming out of the computer screens was dangerous to them, and asking the parents to make sure the kids wouldn't use computers outside of school as well, which to me is a, it's a pretty silly idea in a modern day and age to try and deliberately keep kids away from computers. Good God. Um, all right, we've found one of these roosters warning us about LED lights. Here he is from New the Tube. I call these LEDs Trojan horses because they uh, appear so practical to us. They appear to have so many advantages. They save energy, they are solid state, so are very robust, for example. So we invited them into our homes, but we are not aware that they have hidden properties which are harmful to our system, harmful to, to our mental health, harmful to our retinal health and also harmful to our hormonal health. This is one of the most important video interviews I believe you'll ever see. Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health and today we are joined by Dr. Alexander Wunsch from Germany and he is really a world-class expert, one of the best I know of in photobiology. We're going to talk about the dangers, the hidden stealth dangers of LED lighting that you most likely are not aware of. Wow, stealth dangers. There you go. So um, hopefully for people who are seasoned skeptics, as soon as they heard the name Dr. Mercola, the alarm bell started ringing. Um, Dr. Mercola is well known for trying to push all sorts of nonsense and tied with that, tied with a blog where he's very prolific at trying to make people scared, he also sells products that help them to protect themselves from these scary things. Um, and in this case, he's scaring people about LEDs. And LEDs, they look like a great technology. They're cheap, they last for a long time, they're so much better than incandescent bulbs or CFLs. And CFLs are one of those products where there's also been scaremongering. And, and like with this one, this Dr. Vunch, there, there was a single activist who was really doing most of the complaining about the compact fluorescent bulbs. Apparently with the LEDs, the problem is they're not putting out enough near-infrared and they're putting out too much blue light. And the lack of near-infrared, it's really, really odd. I, I tried to figure out what was going on. I, I think the argument is that the near-infrared we need to keep us warm because... Yeah. It's warmth, it, you know, it, it's sunlight. Um, and the idea is that because we're spending less time in sunlight, we're getting less of this, and the new LED bulbs aren't replacing that natural near-infrared with artificial near-infrared. But, of course, we still get sunlight all day, even if it's just through a window. It's not like people are not getting the amount of near-infrared that they need to keep warm. Um, we keep warm with heaters if it's cold. And, of course, we do eat more food. Um, there's an argument in there that apparently we need to eat more food if we're not getting this light from the new LED bulbs. If you're cold, you do eat more food. Your body burns more and it keeps you warm. And then the flip side, the too much blue light apparently is something to do with your endocrine system. Um, and it just, they talk about some 
studies that really they don't say what these two guys on this conference call are, are saying that the studies say. The, the studies are very preliminary. There's not really a risk of having too much blue light as far as I can tell, or at the very least the evidence is not in. But these guys are out there, they're scaremongering. They're trying to make people think that LEDs are bad. It would be really horrible to see LEDs go like the artificial sweeteners, where they really haven't taken off as well as they should do because of the scaremongering, because of these few idiots who are out there making people feel like it's too much of a risk to do it. But, Mark, so, I, I've heard that artificial sweeteners are actually chemicals. <laughs> they are, that's right, unlike, you know, natural sweeteners and, and everything else. Um, yes, it, it seems like, yes, chemicals equals artificial equals bad. It's just, it's such a ridiculous idea and a ridiculous distinction. Um, but there we go, that's, that's where people are these days, that anything new and technological... It, it's it's an avenue for making people scared and making people stay away. But the idea of go, getting people to go back to incandescent bulbs, yeah. I, I think that's horrible. That's going to be so environmentally wasteful. Oh, look, the LED is just one of the most amazing inventions, and it's going a fair way to saving the freaking planet. It is. I, I think the energy savings are um, pretty significant. I think the fact that they last for so long, you know, bulbs can go for 10,000 hours yeah. or more LED bulbs. I, I, I think it means that they really are a, a good thing for the planet. Um, so, yeah, so hopefully nobody's going to listen to these idiots and people are going to keep going out and buying their LED bulbs. Mm. OK, uh, one last story. We've got plenty of time tonight. Good one. Cannabis oil for cancer again. <sighs> yeah, so... Uh, so this is just a quick one. The Herald published a story about a, a woman in the UK who um, the article says has terminal cancer or had terminal cancer. And she took cannabis oil and now she's clear. So she's gone from being terminal to being cured. And apparently the only thing she needs now is a three-monthly checkup. That's all there is, which is, you know, it, it's as good as cured. They're, they're checking just to make sure. But as soon as I read this, I was like, that doesn't sound right. You know, a, a terminal diagnosis means, unfortunately, that you are going to die, that there is nothing medical science has that is going to cure you. Um, it turns out in this article what they mean by terminal is that she was going to die if she didn't get treatment. And that is not what terminal diagnosis means. No. Uh, and she did get treatment. She, she took the cannabis oil, but she also had chemotherapy. Um, now, I'll leave it to the listeners to figure out which one is more likely to have cured her of the cancer. The, the tried and tested chemotherapy that we know helps people with cancer or the cannabis oil. The, the, the very best I can say for it is, is experimental. I, I certainly expect that after testing has been done, it will show to be ineffective for treating cancer. It might be good for... Uh, helping people with the sickness they get from chemotherapy and a, a few other side effects of cancer treatments, but I certainly don't think it's going to be a cancer cure. No. All right. Well, thanks for the heads up on that. Very much a public service. Good for you. Uh, you come from a footballing nation, um, or next door to one, Scotland anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are you following the World Cup? Do you do that? No, I'm okay. not a sports person at all, I'm afraid. No worries. I'll recommend a book for you then. It's called World Cup Baby, and it's a tremendous read for people who actually don't like sport. God, it's good. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about the World Cup, believe it or not, and we'll be um, speaking with the author after this commercial break. Um, I'll give you a fun fact for the pub, though. What is the most successful international football team 
in the world? Ooh, Brazil? No. It's Uruguay. Really? Uruguay. Two World Cups. They've come third once. I think they've been in the semi-finals four times. Golden Boot, Diego Forlan. Uh, they've won Copa America more than any other South American nation. And that's not a dollar, is it? You've got to get past Brazil, Argentina, Ecuador, Chile, etc. I'm boring you now, I can tell. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> okay, off you go. Thank you very much, Mark Honeychurch. We'll talk about this stuff the other side of the break. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. We're going to stop meeting like this. Oh, it's only once every four years. Ewan McCabe, author of World Cup Baby and World Cup Aficionado, to put it mildly, actually, uh, joins us. Good day, Ewan. Good morning, Graham. You are on Russian time, I understand. I am indeed, and it's almost like I'm living through a Russian winter because um, I don't see the sunlight at all, and also um, it's always so incredibly cold. So it's almost like I'm living in Russia at the moment as well. Uh, how's the jet lag? <laughs> that's not too bad, <laughs> although the sleep lag's pretty bad. Yeah, I bet. Oh, well, that's the sort of dedication you show, uh, and I suppose it is. If you want to watch all the games live, uh, it's the best way to do it. Um, <laughs> You haven't missed a game since 1978 or something along those lines? Um, uh, 1978 was when I discovered the World Cup, the Argentinian uh, tournament in 1978. Mm. And then I went to Italy in 1990 uh, to that tournament. And that was a great experience, obviously. But the problem is when you go to a World Cup tournament, you miss games because you have to get on the bus about three hours before you go into your game and yeah. there's another game on somewhere else. And I just decided, basically, that um, I can't afford to miss any more games. So in 1994, with the advent of Sky Television, which meant the whole tournament was being screened live, I decided what I'd do is take time off work and actually see if I could sit through the whole tournament. And it's become a little bit of... I, I achieved that and felt quite proud of myself, but it's now become a bit of an obsession. I've watched every World Cup match since then across... Goodness me, that must be about seven or eight tournaments. I'm up to four, about 408 games consecutive that I've watched. And I've be, it's become an obsession. I now can't afford to miss a game, not so much because I might miss a game of football, but because I've just got to keep this run going. Oh, right. You can't reverse this out now. You've started. You have to finish. I'm stuck. Yeah, you for are. the rest of my life. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, let's talk a little bit about this tournament. Listeners, we'll be talking about scandals and marvellous history and weird things about the World Cup because it is, it's the biggest and the strangest in many ways uh, competition in the world. Um, your impressions of the Russian show so far? Well, first of all, um, in terms of Russia hosting the tournament, you know, you've got to give them a big tick. Um, this is the first World Cup in my living memory where there hasn't been a succession of reports in the media leading up to it about uh, Russia not being ready or the stadiums not being built. Uh, every country that hosts the World Cup, we seem to always have this crisis thing, of, you know, six or eight months out. They're not ready. Uh, these stadiums in Russia, the... the um, the tournament's been played in 11 cities, uh, 12 stadiums in 11 cities, so there's two in Moscow and then 
there is spread across other venues around Russia. And all of these stadiums were ready uh, over a year ago, and the cost is just eye-watering. The stadium in St. Petersburg uh, cost 1.1 billion US dollars. What? Um, Yep. Uh, So my advice to anybody listening in Auckland is that Vladimir Putin should be uh, voted in, in as your next mayor because you won't get one stadium, you'll get 12 of them. So, and, and in terms of everything else the Russians have done, they've done it very well. They've got a system, uh, a security system in terms of um, you have to actually have a little uh, pass on you to get into all of the stadiums. So they're kind of keeping, there's a kind of a hooligan element in Russian football that's been kept out of the stadiums. Uh-huh. We've had no trouble at all anywhere during this World Cup, which is unusual for a European World Cup. Yeah. Uh, the weather's been great. Uh, the women look fantastic. Uh, so, as I say, you've really got to give Russia a big tick. Russia itself, uh, what's helping, of course, is they are pretty m- they, the Russian national football team has pretty much been the team of the tournament so far. And it's a little bit dangerous to kind of encourage Russian nationalism, I know. But but that's also been something that's really added to the tournament. Obviously, the country's got right behind this in a way that they probably couldn't have imagined. Because the thing about Russia is most countries that host the World Cup, football is clearly the number one sport. But because of the weather in Russia... It's more, you know, they have nine-month winters where basically you can't do anything for nine months, can't even go outside. And so there's a very narrow window to play football, and therefore it's the indoor sports like ice hockey, volleyball, basketball that tend to be the bigger sports in Russia. But with their national team going so well, it's kind of galvanised the Russian public as well. So, look, uh, Vladimir Putin's got his critics. And you kind of wonder where all the money's come from, but certainly the tournament's been a success so far. Yes. Uh, Russia doesn't have many friends in the West, um, and you know there are lots of sanctions. Sometimes I think we misunderstand uh, the perspective of the Russian mentality, the Ukrainian mentality, because none of... None of us, none of us have been... had that national... unless you're an immigrant, welcome... Um, uh, oh God, the hell of Stalin, and then you wind it back. The hell of uh, the fascists in in the Ukraine, and and what they went with through. I mean, I, I'm glad the Soviet Union collapsed, but it's a peculiar mindset in Russia, isn't it? Oh, very much so. I've been to Russia a couple of times, and as far as the, if you look at the Second World War, it's almost as though it finished yesterday. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's still, uh, you know, we. what concerns me a little bit about um, Western society these days is that I don't think our children are learning enough about history because it's all about history is what dictates why we've arrived at this point that we're at now. Mm. And in the West, I kind of, um, I'm a little bit sad about what's happening. I just don't think our our young people know enough about our history and how we got to where we are. No problem over in Russia about uh, their identity and where they've got, you know, how they've reached this point in their history. Now, the thing about Russians that you've got to understand, Graham, they're a different mentality. For 1,500 years, they have never had democracy. For 1,500 years, they've been driven across into the area where they now live, and it's been basically a siege mentality you know, for almost 15 centuries now. And, 
it, you cannot you cannot remove that from people's consciousness or psyche or psyche overnight. Uh, it's going to take a long time to remove that. And the thing is, people say, you know, it should be a, a real democracy, a real Western democracy. And but what people I think tend to forget is that Russia actually had a decade of that. In 1992, when the Soviet Union collapsed, they had Boris Yeltsin as their president, and Yeltsin was uh, had a full democracy running there. Uh, now, what happened is the economy collapsed, uh, the military fell into disrepair, uh, people lost their savings, um, their security, and then along came Vladimir Putin, and Putin kind of harked back to the past, in a sense that he's a strong leader and Russians really identify with strong leadership. And so I don't think it was any surprise that they kind of immediately gravitated to him after what they'd been through in that 10 years of open democracy. And I think I have to be very careful here because I'm not Russian uh, and I've never lived in Russia and there are probably Russian people who are listening to this who may not agree with this, but my interpretation is that... Um, they're comfortable with Vladimir Putin. Uh, I don't know why the guy jacks the elections, because he would win them if he didn't. He'd probably have a smaller majority, but he would win the election because I believe he's still the choice of the Russian people. And so it's, a, it's, very, it's very difficult to start kind of lecturing to them about you should do it this way, you should do it that way, you should have a true open democracy, etc., etc. They're not used to that, and they had 10 years of it. It went very badly for them, and um, they seemed, as I say, to, to gravitate towards Vladimir Putin. Mm. Yes, and uh, think about the Ukraine and the memories of the uh, the fascists in Ukraine as well. That, that still boils. But anyway... Okay, uh, let's talk about the football. Um, I have seen, you might call me a bit silly with this, I, I, or you might agree, I don't know. I've seen a couple of the best matches I think I've seen at any World Cup, um, Portugal, Spain, but Mexico, Germany, the Mexicans, whatever drug they're on, just get, keep taking it. Um, they just sliced open that defence with sheer pace, and it was end to end to end. How do they do I don't know how they do it. I don't know. Your thoughts? Um, yeah, it was... i tell you what, it was a sh that, those kind of games are a real shock to the senses at 3 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> um, I mean, even though I'm getting up, you know, around 10 or 11 at night, and so therefore, theoretically, 3 o'clock in the morning is the middle of the day for me, they, the games like that still come as a shock to the senses. And you're right, the pace of that game was incredible. It was frenetic. And, and you're so right, Graham, it went from, from one end to the other. Uh, the Germans would sweep forward, the Mexicans would come back. Um, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because the Germans, one interesting facet of this tournament so far is the so-called big guns, the heavyweights, the favourites. A lot of them, most of them are struggling at the moment, and Germany is certainly in that category. It took a late drama for them to get that win over Sweden mm. last night. And the German defence is just, in both matches... They were, they were better in the second half against Sweden, but it, in both matches, the, the match against Mexico and the match against Sweden, just seemed to be static. Uh, 
and the Mexicans with that incredible pace were able to get behind them and you don't often see that because of course the Germans, we go through all the cliches don't you about organisation and efficiency so to see the Germans kind of on the run was a very unusual situation and of course Mexico just wasted chances in that first half, they could have been two or three yeah. up at half time and the game could have been buried. Germany came back uh, in the second half, it was more, they played the game more at their tempo, but then they couldn't find a way through the, the Mexican wall. But, yeah, that was certainly a standout game in the tournament. Yeah. Um, there's something I am wary of, and that is I do notice that a lot of people have the prejudice of the jersey. You see the Germans in their jersey, and they say, oh, yes, they're very organised, uh, skillful, but organised and, and um, th- thrusting forward and, and, and that sort of thing. Or oh, Brazil, all finesse and fanciness. You're looking at the jersey. Um, I agree. I, I can't really pick skill, finesse, or, you know, style-wise. Um, most of these teams are, are outstanding, with a couple of exceptions. You put... You put the Germans in Brazilian jerseys and everyone will say, oh, look at all that fancy footwork. Yeah, I agree. Perhaps, uh, I think it, it harks back maybe to 30 years ago when there was, a, there was a marked difference. You know, those great Brazilian teams of the 60s and 70s led by Pelé and Rivellino, they were just so exceptional and the beauty of their football was astounding. And then you've got the Germans who... Uh, you know, they robbed the beautiful Dutch of the Cup mm. in 1974 and they did it with kind of quite strong arm tactics and they're, they're boring and they're defensive and they're efficient and well set up and clinical and all those cliches. And so I, I think that this thinking belongs 30 years ago and, and we've come forward 30 years, but I think that thinking still exists. Mm. The thing, of, and I thoroughly agree with you, um, since Joachim Law became the German coach, and this is, what, 12 years now, they've actually played a very a brand of football that's very pleasing on the eye. Yeah. And you are right. Um, I think the stigma with the Germans remains, but I think it's unfair. Yeah, I agree. Look, we'll take a short break, and when we return, the most overachieving nation, sporting nation on the planet. Tuned in to Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Well, it's not exactly have a go day. It's not the best teams that turn up at the World Cup. Goodness me. I think Belgium B might be better than half the teams that are there. Um, and also, you know, it's uh, you get people from they're all the different groups. So it, it does try to welcome the world. Um why does it do that with referees? Is that still the deal? You and McCabe, author of World Cup Baby, uh, is with us. To, is it have a go day for the referees? They say, oh, yes, well, let's get a referee from uh, uh, Chad. <laughs> or, or Palmerston North, which is where Matthew Conger's from, our New Zealand referee that's over there. Yeah, I fell over when I heard this. And we have got a VAR check just going on at the moment. The referee is going across to have a look because there was certainly contact from Omaru. And Matt Conger from New Zealand will come across to the VAR console to have a look at the replays. We're world famous. We are. Um, do you remember what happened four years ago with Peter O'Leary, who was our last referee at the last World Cup? No. Um, he refereed the match between Nigeria and Bosnia-Herzegovina. Mm. 
and um, he disallowed a goal for Bosnia-Herzegovina. Nigeria won 1-0, and Bosnia-Herzegovina were, were eliminated, and he had received death threats, and somebody started a petition against him in Bosnia-Herzegovina, which reached about 20,000 signatures, I think. So Matthew Conger, uh, he, he refereed Belgium versus Iceland the other night, and he got through that match a lot better than our last referee did four years ago. Right, this is the sort of level of passion that is continuous in football and at its height at the World Cup. Yes, and this is the problem for referees, isn't it, Graham? Yeah. Um, well, why not get the best referees? It's not the World Cup of referees. Yeah, it's it's odd, isn't it? Because there isn't a single English... There's, there's um, how many referees? Are there 35? No. Oh. And not a single English referee on there. Now, that, that doesn't sound right to me. Yeah. Um, and when you look at where the referees come from, they, they are spread across the world. So I think it is a little bit of FIFA just saying this confederation here and this, you know, make sure that we've got representation Oh, I don't care. I just want the yeah. best referees, but, I think. Well, they... i tell you what, Matthew Kong is a, a good referee. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, they're fine. Yeah, um, it's all, as a Wellington Phoenix fan, it's always a relief when I see him turn up at Westpac Stadium because the officiating in the A-Leads are appalling, right. and he's actually one of the standouts, and that's probably why he's drifted through over there. They've looked down in this part of the world and said, well, he's clearly a standout. It's quite a um, procedure you have to go to to become one of the appointed referees. Oh. You have to attend symposiums and, and conferences endlessly, uh, so it's quite a convoluted process because, of course, they, the referees often can make or break a tournament. So FIFA um, mm. <laughs> want to make sure they, they dot all the I's and cross the T's. I wrote a little thing on YouTube. Uh, no, sorry, um, Facebook. Um, and I, I want to restate it here because nobody does and hardly anybody knows this, and it's an outrage. Little old Uruguay, the most successful international football side on the planet. They've won the South American Cup uh, 15 times, more than Argentina, more than Brazil. That ain't easy. Go out and try it. They've won the World Cup twice, gold medal in the Olympics twice, recognised by FIFA as a thing. Um, they've been in the semi-finals how many times? Four? Yeah, well, they've um, they finished fourth three times and won the World Cup twice, so that means they must have gone to the semi-finals five times, yeah. Right, and population, just a little over three million. Um, now, that Haraf guy who was saying we will never be able to compete with Japan, the population is terrible. We've got more people in Uruguay. How proud must they be of their record? And it wasn't all just yesterday. They were um, South American champions in 2011. Yeah, that's right. I think they've won 20 international titles uh, because you said the 15 Copper Americas, two World Cups, two gold medals, and they won some kind of strange FIFA versus rest of world thing yeah. in the 1970s. So 20 international trophies is the record. It's more than Germany, it's more than Brazil, it's more than Italy, it's more than anyone. And for a country of 3.7 million, that's just astonishing. Now, let's just put this in perspective because... Uh, New Zealanders probably look at the Rugby World Cup. There's a lot of very small nations that uh, qualify for the Rugby World Cup and do well, nations like Tonga and Samoa. 
you just don't have that in the Football World Cup. Uh, in fact, to give you an example, 79 nations in the Football World Cup have played in the finals over the 80 years of the tournament. 79 nations. Uruguay at 3.7 million are still the sixth smallest country to ever play in the Football World Cup finals. So you just think about that, Graham. 79 countries over 80 years, they're the sixth smallest. And you look at their record, it really is astonishing. It is. They must be so proud of it. And I always think of that when I see them play. Diego Forlan won the Golden Boot as well the, uh, a few years ago. Anyway. He did. And and, and they've started well. Um, they've had a couple of wins. So, And they've got a side that could go deep into this tournament. Yeah. Uh, and that's you always cheer for Argent, uh, for. Uruguay and Argentina from South America. Yep. It looks uh, like Argentina are on their way out. Yes, we'll see. <laughs> and just a nice little addition, their president till 2015, the poorest leader in the world, he owned a Volkswagen, and that was it. Ewan, we'll keep talking throughout this. It'll be great fun. Thank you very much. Ewan McCabe, author of World Cup Baby, go get his book. There's a link on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage where you can go grab it.